This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and we're going to be wrapping up our look at Jurassic Park with a musical film commentary. This episode will be the first half of the movie. I'll play a little audio from the beginning, and you can watch or listen along. But first, so we can stay in sync with the movie, we're going to take a quick break. Be right back. So, grab some popcorn and a beverage, sit back, and enjoy Jurassic Park in 5, 4, Three, two, one. This is a really interesting way uh, for Jurassic Park to begin. It starts with just the sound of the jungle rather than the Universal logo over this Universal Studios globe here. Uh, for those of you that know that theme, it's like... I, people think I'm crazy when I talk about how influential Star Wars is, but those are all perfect melodies here, you know? And that pillar, those pillars of strength, just, I don't think, play well against what they're kind of going for here in terms of mystery. Because by using the jungle sounds, we kind of know we're in for something special, something unique. And then, of course, we have this wonderful opening. By the way, this flute line, check it out. It's the Predator's theme. Na, 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 na. The first two notes are kind of bent. So the film kind of starts out with a Predator's theme and ends with a Predator's theme at the end credits. It's bookended by that theme. And this is great here. The first shot we get of Jurassic Park is of these branches and a very worried uh, construction worker's face as it cuts back and forth. And what's really interesting is they're all wearing Jurassic Park helmets, which it's neat that they're using the logo in the movie and it's also the logo for the movie. Um, that's a wonderful parallel, sort of self-aware parallel in terms of 
uh, branding the movie. But we don't know that this isn't a dinosaur until this shot right here. You have this this tense music with uh, the synthesizer and this. Uh, we had heard a vibra slap in there that you know. And uh, it turns out it's not a dinosaur coming through the trees at all that, that's uh, giving these guys some concern. It's a forklift carrying a box, and we're going to find out that that box is actually carrying a dinosaur. This is classic Steven Spielberg, you know, using film to kind of mislead us a little bit. Uh, Isla Nublar, 120 miles west coast of, west of Costa Rica. So this cold open's really interesting. We hear a little bit of, uh, uh, of uh, the dinosaur sound, but we don't actually ever see it. You know, uh, kind of like the shark. We don't actually ever see it. Uh, there's Gary Rydstrom's work as he scares that uh, that worker with a wonderful haircut. Always like that guy's haircut. <laughs> but uh, we hear the dinosaur, and we can tell by all the machine guns and tasers and uh, Muldoon's giant shotgun there that this thing is very dangerous, and they're taking tremendous precautions in terms of just moving the animal into this pen. And now listen to this uh, cue that comes up here. Williams, of course, is just giving us these low French horns. Gary Rydstrom giving us these sounds. And now listen to this King Kong-esque. Da-da-da, It almost sounds like Temple of Doom to me a little bit. Um, but it's got this uh, wonderful trumpet fanfare, and of course everything goes wrong. And the raptor pushes the box away, leaving this worker exposed, and he's dragged in. And of course, Williams has the strings going nuts. The horn's doing all these stabs. This is classic John Williams action horror here. Uh, the French horns. Da, 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 da. Um, you know, his output in the 90s had a lot of this kind of sound to it. You know, to me, this sounds like what he would do with the Star Wars prequels uh, a few years later. And we'll talk about that as we as we go along. That um, you know, there are some pieces in Jurassic Park where you can hear uh, other other movies that he was doing it. You know, at a similar time. But this this cold open is amazing because it really kind of sets the tone for a really really scary movie. And then everything stops and goes away, and we're left with this ridiculous shot of Gennaro the lawyer getting pulled on a raft as he's in this, you know, uh, this. Very 90s looking suit uh, in the Dominican Republic. Checking out this amber mine here. <laughs> what does he say? I'm gonna, I'll bet you like a million pesos if, you know, that he's going to fall or something. I don't know what he's saying there in Spanish. But um, in the book, Gennaro is not characterized like this. Uh, Gennaro is much more... Um, uh, he's much stronger. He's able to kind of hold his own, and he actually survives the novel. I think what they did with this lawyer and, and this character actor, this wonderful character actor here, is, is they kind of combined this publicist Ed Regis with the Gennaro character into one character and made him a lot more of a wet noodle and kind of the the fun character to, to you know, hiss at and, and hate. Um, this poor, this poor, <laughs> poor lawyer is just in over his head and just is not at home uh, either in this amber mine or when we get to Isla Nublar. Um, but uh, yeah, there are a lot of differences in the books versus the movie. We'll talk about that, but I want to point out this cue that happens here. As he grabs this uh, piece of amber with a mosquito caught into it, caught in it, listen to what John Williams does here. He gives you this, this uh, same choir that he gave you at the beginning. You know, you get this kind of growing sound, and then you get this almost ancient godlike chorus here. There it is. 
it very menacing, uh, almost evil. And then now listens to, to what he does. Now we cut away to Montana where they're digging at the site. And you get a very treatment, very different treatment of dinosaur bones. Listen to this like almost angelic choir giving you these almost sad um, ethereal chords. So without saying a word, we're kind of being given a morality here. The difference between what they're doing in the Amber Mine and what we know is going to eventually become Jurassic Park is menacing and unwise, whereas what they're doing here in the Badlands near Snakewater, Montana, as I lead, read the, uh, the lower subtitle here, is, is morally uh, good or normal. These are probably our hero characters here. Um, you know, everything's much brighter, they're much happier, they're smiling, and the music is telling us that everything's okay. And then from here, we just kind of get cinema verite. We just get no music. We just get these people working out in the desert in this whole sequence here. You learn that Dr. Alan Grant is a bit like us. He is struggling with computers as, you know, in, in the early 90s, computers were new to everybody. Uh, home PCs were, were just starting to enter um, in, in a major way into the majority of homes uh, throughout the 90s, and of course in 92 and 93, they were still very new. And like us, Dr. Grant is looking at this newfangled technology as it's progressing so fast and completely changing his workplace. Um, we can relate to him. We can relate to him this way. And in a lot of ways, he is us. Good shape, too. Five, six feet high, I'm guessing nine feet long. The promise of new technology is, is one of the main appeals of Jurassic Park when you walked into the door because everyone knew that they were going to see something new and unique and, and uh, CGI had been touted as a big deal and, and uh, this was the latest and greatest uh, Spielberg movie with uh, visual effects and, and these computers are, are these newfangled machines here. But now here is an interesting thing about where the, the, the movie differs from the book. Dr. Grant in the book actually really likes kids. He really likes Tim and, and Lex, uh, Hammond's grandchildren. But here, this kid who does an amazing job really annoys him. And uh, Laura Dern's character, Ellie Sadler, she goes, oh, no, here we go, as if she recognizes this trigger a mile away with him. And uh, he threatens this kid with a raptor claw. I mean, he just scares the crap out of this kid, you know. Um, so you learn right away some things that are unique to Dr. Grant in the movie that are not in the book, which is that they set up the sort of anti-kid thing in him, an anti-technology thing in him. Um, and, uh, you know, and think about it. Here's a guy who's just been digging up dinosaur bones and studying things that are millions of years old and now faced with all of this technology that's actually going to bring to life uh, the thing that he's been studying for years and, and how unnatural all of that is. Um, but yeah, the, the kid thing is, is kind of presenting his character arc early on in the movie. It's funny. I told a story in, in the podcast of when I went to go see Jurassic Park with my friends. And one of the parts of the story that I omitted that I'll tell you now is that one of my friends left the theater disappointed. I mean, we all loved the movie, loved, loved, loved the movie. And I turned to my friend and he was just not feeling it. And I was shocked. How could you not love this movie? And it's because he had read the book and he had come in with certain expectations based on the book that he didn't feel like we're in the movie. I hadn't read the book. I hadn't even heard of the book. Like I said, I was in my own little world at the time and uh, went in cold to Jurassic Park and just had an amazing ride for, for two hours. He went in with all of these expectations. And, and it was a tremendous lesson to me back then 
uh, and it still is now, in terms of the difference between the mediums, a book versus a movie. And they have their own rules, they have their own strengths, and they have their own weaknesses. And obviously, you can give so much more detail in a book than you can in a film. And films are just so difficult anyway, because you only have 90 minutes to two hours to give all the information people need. These are our characters. This is what's going on. And pushing through that exposition is really, really hard. And sometimes you have to be very clever visually and very succinct with your word choices in order to actually convey information as quickly as possible. And when that happens, you're, you're leaving things out. You have to omit certain things. And a book doesn't have that problem. A book can, can uh, go into much greater detail. And uh, it's interesting, as you watch the series Jurassic Park, you start to see all of those scenes that were in the book that were omitted show up in Lost World. You know, I mean, whole whole species of dinosaurs didn't even make it into this movie, like the Procomsignathus, you know, the, the Compies, uh, things like that. Um, uh, the Stegosaurus is another example. It didn't make it into this movie. Ah, here's John Hammond. Again, no music in all of this. No music. Um, and part of that, I think, is to give us contrast from the beginning. We have, we've almost forgotten about the horrors of the beginning because we haven't had much music besides that transition of... of of, you know, the dig site of Amber versus the dig site of uh, Old Bones in Montana. We haven't had any music. And in a way, the upcoming piece, Journey to the Island, benefits from that because it becomes even more magical when we finally hear it. And, we you know, we're going to hear a little Mr. Hammond intro music here before Journey to the Island starts uh, once he kind of discusses his plans here. But all we know right now is that some rich jerk just, you know, uh, blue uh, dirt and dust all over a very, very fragile dig site and pop this guy champagne. So uh, things aren't off to a good start. And again, if you're going to this movie cold, you just have no idea any of this is coming. You know, at the beginning of the movie, you were hit with this huge scare and uh, someone was just murdered by a beast that we barely got to see, but we certainly heard. And the music told us that it was very, very scary. But that's all we know. That's all we know. And then we cut away and we almost forget about it. We're lulled into a false sense of confidence. This is a great cinematic trick um, that uh, Spielberg and Williams are doing here. And not just kids, everyone. We're going to open next year. That is if the lawyers don't kill me first. I, I don't care for lawyers. In the book, uh, we actually find out about that raptor attack in the beginning based on an account of the doctors in Costa Rica seeing these helicopters come in and this publicist, Ed Regis, bringing this mauled body and saying, oh, it was an industrial accident. He was hit by a, a, a big industrial mower or something like that. And the doctor's like, no, this looks like an animal attack. He's like, no, 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 that's impossible. It was a thresher or something like that. I forget what the industrial uh, equipment was that they said, uh, you know, attack, you know, hurt this this worker. He dies there on the table, and of course the doctors know, no, this is an animal attack. They can smell the saliva. They can see the claw marks. And uh, that's how we're introduced to that raptor attack in the book. Uh, here's a little movie. Or, <laughs> here's a little music to pique our curiosity here. Um, William scoring that curious look on Alan Grant or actor Samuel's face. Um, something magical is about to happen here. The music is starting to ramp up a little bit, and it's pulling us a little bit out of our reality of the of the summer heat of that dig. And um, oh, he's gonna he's gonna fund the dig for another three years. This is good. This is very good. And now we're going to get to the uh, emotional heart of this entire score as we journey to the island here. Our characters are happy. 
And here it comes. Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. There's this whole scene with Dodgson and Nedry. Got some source music here. Here's a great source cue uh, in Costa Rica, the mainland here, with the uh, cheap spy. Dodgson is from a, a different uh, genetic company, and he operates in uh, corporate espionage here. In the book, they talk about it quite a bit. You know, there's an opportunity basically to 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 steal this research and get ahead. And uh, of course, Wayne Knight's character, Dennis Nedry. It's a character from New England who feels like he got completely shafted because he had to come in and redo a lot of the work because of all these bugs. One of the plots in Jurassic Park, the book, is that they really, really, really relied on technology to fully automate the park in order to keep costs down. So the central control system is so important. The control room, everything's automated. So you don't have all this manual labor. You don't have this huge staff. So your operating costs are very, very low. And of course, that's part of the hubris that undo that is the undoing of the park here. And uh, Dennis Nedry designed the whole system, and he feels like he was underappreciated, that he was underpaid, that he had to come in and redo a lot of work on his own dime, and it became a prime target for Dodgson and, and another company to come in and basically expose him as a weakness because it's not just greed. It's also, it's also a little bit like Nedry wants to stick it to the man. And again, in the book, Hammond is not a nice man. He's not this kind of uh, Sir Richard Attenborough, uh, gentle grandfather that we see in the movie. He's, he's a jerk. And uh, Nedry thinks he's a jerk. And so there's, there, you don't quite get that in the movie. You just kind of get the charm of, of Wayne Knight and, and Seinfeld. And it's a great, great scene um, that Wayne Knight, just with that wonderful squeal that he gives and What's with the Barbasol shaving cream on the pie? Um, I don't think we ever see him eat it, do we? It's just kind of one of those weird, like, let me put it here. Oh, okay, I'm going to stop talking about that because now we're, now we're a journey to the island here. Look at this beautiful, beautiful photography here as we come up onto the island of Isla Nublar. And there he is, Jeff Goldblum, giving one of the greatest, most iconic franchise performances here. The rock star. And that laugh. I think there's a YouTube video where you can watch that laugh on a loop. That's great. So this music suddenly almost transports us into a completely different movie. You know, this kind of happy adventure music um, with this kind of archaeologist slash uh, paleontologist Grant with his hat and the rock star. You kind of have this now cast of characters here for the first time being introduced this is Jurassic Park's Millennium Falcon, if you will. Um, and the music is just exciting and adventurous. And it really goes with the visuals because we're about to come up on the island of Kauai. I think it's the Nepali coast. For any of you that have been to Kauai, it's one of the most lush, gorgeous uh, spots on the planet. Um, my wife and I went there and just had an amazing time. And we actually did a helicopter ride specifically because you could actually land at the waterfall that they land at. And... Uh, and uh, wait, I'm going to stop here because this music is just incredible. Oh, that music next to those visuals. I mean, does it get any better than that? So we took a helicopter ride. And of course, you get to soar through all these canyons, just like you do in the movie. Um, and uh, the helicopter pilot was incredibly skilled and, and opened up and you know, asked, he really opened up the throttle and asked any of us, are any of you get motion sick? And we all said, no. And he said, great. And he just 
went for it. And then he did the greatest thing. True story. He put the Jurassic Park music on in our headphones. So we were listening to Journey to the Island as we were flying through this. And it was like super emotional. Oh, here's that great moment with Dr. Grant where you can't, he doesn't have both ends of the seatbelt. So he ties the two quote female ends together in order to uh, survive the turbulence. But yeah, we landed right at that waterfall uh, when we visited Kauai and you can do the same. Um, This movie is just so beautiful and lush and I'm sorry, but that is a metaphor. It has to be because they make such a big deal out of it. You know, it's not just in one shot, it's in multiple shots. And here they come landing with this gorgeous music. And again, this is Spielberg giving us time to express this melody. You know, this has to be in the cut. He has to know, I'm going to give John Williams this amount of time because pacing is a big deal, especially in modern movies. Modern movies move much faster than than even movies that were made uh, when this came out years and years and years ago. But uh, you have to give screen time for melody to express itself. And he does that. And we get it actually again. So what, we've heard the main melody expressed at least three times here. And there's the logo. And now, bump. And now listen how it turns into travel log music. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, that's just a wonderful painting with music here. You get it again there. It's part of this travel music as they go through the gate. Just a wonderful cue. This whole sequence is the musical and emotional heart of this movie, and I would argue this franchise. And uh, for me, it hasn't been duplicated in this series. I mean, the series, even with Spielberg, Spielberg made a sequel, and we could talk about Lost World if if uh, we, we get to it on the soundtrack show, but The Lost World is a very different movie than this, and that was in, incredibly intentional. It was even shot, you know, it wasn't shot in Hawaii. It was meant to look like a different island. It was meant to be more of an homage to King Kong, Godzilla, all of those type of things. And musically, it was much more of a Max Steiner score a la King Kong than than this movie is. This movie is more like E.T. It's more sentimental. Um, it's more magical. And no movie in the Jurassic Park franchise has quite captured that the same way. Maybe in Jurassic World where they have that moment of nostalgia. But really, I think that's by design, even by Spielberg, that this movie is really, in this moment here, I mean, look at the way he directs them. He just moves the camera in very slowly. And you don't know if they're looking at something dangerous or horrible yet. And Williams isn't giving away his hand here. Grant stands up, removes his sunglasses. And the look on his face. Their their been extinct since I mean, you know, their heart rate's gone up. They're in utter shock. And look at Laura Dern's performance here. Is it horror? What is she seeing? And then suddenly we all are relieved as we see the most gorgeous looking Brachiosaurus next to this hymn of music. I mean, it's almost like we're, we're look, I mean, I remember this movie, this moment in the theater so well. We're looking at something. There's a one-to-one here with the characters and with the audience. We're seeing something we've absolutely never seen before. A total breakthrough in technology in the fictional world of our characters and in the audience, audience's world in the theater. And the music is designed completely to bring you to tears the same way that our in the same way that our characters are brought to tears here 
They're so excited. It's their, they've never seen this, and this is their life's work. This whole shot was storyboarded here, too. This whole idea of looking up and pulling on the branch, and the music swells. Ah, uh, and there's the dark side of it. And this is wonderful, just Jeff Goldblum just laughing. Like, even the, the cold, calculating mathematician can't help but be overtaken by the power and beauty of nature. And even the T-Rex thing, you know, they're, they're, they're taking it all in. They, they, they can't believe it, you know, you brought a T-Rex. But, you know, is that fear? What is this? I don't know, but the music is not playing any of that. The music is playing Hammond right here. And then this unbelievable shot here as he looks up and he sees something that we've all dreamed of seeing. You step back in time, but it's the most gorgeous view of it. Look how lush that is. Even their costuming is bright. Their smiles, their looks, and the music, the whole thing working together, and then you close up on Sam Neill and he's he's crying. They do move in hurts. Hushed tones, barely speaking. How did you do this? I'll show you. The whispering. How did you do that? It's pure reverence. I'll show you. It's church. The whole thing is designed to feel like church. Ah, and then the music changes quite a bit. I'll show you how I did it, you know? And you come to this compound. Um, this is an interesting musical choice here. It, it, it takes a dark shift because you just left nature and now you're kind of in the man-made world of progress, technology, money. When dinosaurs ruled the earth. Which I believe is, correct me if I'm wrong if there are film historians listening to this, I believe when dinosaurs ruled the earth is a throwback to uh, the silent film The Lost World from 1924, I believe. Um, this is how long dinosaurs have been have been wowing audiences since the silent film era. We're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? Uh, and that line, we're out of a job, don't you mean extinct, was from a real-world story that Phil Tippett said after he saw the CG test. Um, and he said, wow, doing uh, stop-motion animation, we've become extinct. It's my life's work, and now I'm extinct. The happy story there, though, is that that's actually not true, that Phil Tippett stayed on and, and served as a... Uh, as an animation expert and actually built a, a uh, I forget what they called it, but it was basically a, almost like a stop motion dinosaur puppet that had sensors on it that can then be put into the computer. So the animators could actually animate with this stop motion puppet and it would show up as CG. It was this wonderful kind of bridge, bridging technology in order to take advantage of all that animation talent. And of course now we're in this wonderful section with Mr. DNA and, and, uh, when we start this this little film within a film here where they're just going ahead and telling you in this entertaining way, telling all of us through this theme park ride how they did this. This is brilliant writing of David Kapp and, and Spielberg here. Listen to this music. It is uh, William's homage to Carl Stalling, who was one of the composers that wrote all those classic uh, Warner Brothers cartoons uh, and, even, and even Disney before he went to Warner Brothers. So... Um, he really is one of the people that helped invent Mickey Mousing, along with Max Steiner, uh, which is this idea that music hits every footstep and every every note here. 
that ta-da with the uh, Brachiosaurus coming to life here. Um, it's a style that was really, really in its heyday with animation in the 1940s. And uh, calling it stalling around, yeah, it's a wonderful pun and a tribute to Carl Stalling here. But this is a great little John Williams piece with this 2D animation here. This movie within a movie um, just really reinforces the tone um, that, uh, that, that hymn reinforces. This movie has just kind of like a childlike wonder and magic to it. Um, at the same time, trying to be true to the book. You know, the for last time we saw uh, Mosquito and Amber, it was really ominous music. But clearly our characters don't think that it's ominous. You know, Hammond looks at the whole thing like it's a cartoon. You know, we have this cartoon music telling us in this kind of, it's giving us this almost irony of, of where the hubris is going. Like, oh yeah, this is all wonderful. Technology is wonderful. Um, it screens like these once a second for eight hours a day. It'd take two years to look at the entire But of course, this whole thing is their undoing. An interesting thing in the book, too, you can see that, that close-up on Jeff Goldblum's face as he's really paying attention. He flat out knows, even before he goes on the island, that everything's going to go bad. He flat out knows. Um, he's already he's already done the math. He's already He can see it a million miles away. There's actually a whole thing about a Gaussian curve um, in, in the, uh, in the book where he says, can you bring up a Gaussian curve, which is a curve that, that basically looks at the averages of populations of species and, and what's normal and what isn't. And a healthy curve looks a certain way. And they bring up a curve of the dinosaurs in the park. Um, and it's totally healthy and normal. And he's able to say, because of that, like, you've got a problem. These, uh, these dinosaurs are going to procreate. And they're like, that's not possible. We bred them all female. Plus, there's our lysine contingency, which is that if we don't actually feed them lysine-rich uh, foods, which is like an amino acid, uh, they'll die within a few days. So it's not possible. He's like, well, then you should have a Gaussian curve that is totally abnormal, and you don't. Like, he has all of these warning signs that he keeps telling people over and over and over again in the book that this park is going down. He absolutely knows it. Um uh, more than the other characters. And these guys are just having none of this ride. I love this. They they pull up here. Um, again, no music. You know, you're we, we. You can say that that the Mr. DNA Q was music, but really it's just part of. It's part of the in-world music. It's source music. So we really haven't had a cue since they pulled up to the front of the uh, control center here. And now we're going to meet uh, B.D. Wong's character here. I think his name is Dr. Dr. Wu. Is that his name? He does not survive the book either. Um, but of course, in the film franchise, um, he goes on. He's in Jurassic World. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a, an amazing scene. And we're about to hear some great music. Oh, do you hear that? There's John Williams giving... Uh, creepy music with a celeste, which is something that he'll do throughout the 90s, all the way into Harry Potter. Uh, he certainly did it in Hook. But this bell-like instrument, almost like it's a it's a lullaby or a toy, you know. Um, and of course, now you have this gentle harp and this female chorus just giving oohs. It's the sound of a of a of a baby, like an ethereal nursery. A little bit of chimes in there. 
But those piano lines in the background are kind of giving you a, a, a tonality against just your traditional major or minor tonality. It's, it's a little twisted. Amazing work by Stan Winston and of course, of course the Foley artist at Skywalker Sound. There's actually a great video. If you look it up online, you can see the Foley artist at Skywalker Sound and it was on the, it's on the uh, Blu-ray as well. Um, they're actually showing how they created this scene here with fruits and vegetables and, and uh, eggshells and things in order to create. Actually, I think they were using uh, waffle ice cream cones and breaking those off as the pieces of the eggshell in order to create that sound. And you put all that in and the editors come in and they make it perfect, they say. And, and that gives you this illusion of, uh, of perfect sound. And of course, Gary Rydstrom adding his baby, baby raptor yells and that John Williams music. But you see Dr. Malcolm, his wheels are turning here. He's kind of the one that breaks the spell here. Again, how do you know they're all female? Has somebody yeah. gone to the park and pulled the dinosaur skirts? We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. But we simply deny them that. Deny them that? John, the kind of control you're attempting is... Uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing in the history of evolution, the camera pushing in. life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but... No music on this. Oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, like a bucket of cold water. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. <laughs> There's the heart of the movie there. Life finds a way. Sing it in only the way Jeff Goldblum can. <laughs> and then, of course, the the music goes dark here. I, I've been lucky enough to be in a recording studio with a lot of voice actors. And, and I remember one time someone did a voice actor in the studio for whatever reason did a Jeff Goldblum impression that blew me away. And I remember what he said was... Uh, you know, uh, what does it sound like when you invent when you invite Jeff Goldblum over for a barbecue? And uh, and he and he does this. He goes, hey Jeff, uh, uh, we're gonna have a barbecue. What do you want? He goes, he goes. Well, uh, I like chicken. I like hot dogs. I like hamburgers. I like wait. Wait a minute. I'm a I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> For some reason, it was just so funny. Like he does. You know, it's the listing. It's the listing, and then it's the realization, and then the strange way of saying something. Uh, it's just Jeff Goldblum's uh, rhythm to how he says things is part of what makes him such a charming actor. It's the same, you know, uh, same as uh, Christopher Walken has that same thing. Now, now, now we're here we are, of course, in the raptor scene. And this could be a terrifying, horrible scene, but the absurdity of it is is played up. First of all, because of anytime you put a cow moo sound effect into something, it's just kind of absurd and funny. Except for the fact that this brutal scene takes place. And this, again, is pure Spielberg magic here. Um, he completely, as a filmmaker, has the power to show you the dinosaurs and has demonstrated that, yet has, n has not quite shown us what a full-grown dinosaur villain looks like yet. He is holding back. All he shows you is moving branches and brushes and then lets Gary Rydstrom, the sound designer, do all the work there by giving us those terrifying sounds. Um, Heard but not seen. It's a wonderful sound trick. 
Um, so we have yet to really see a full-grown raptor. He could show us, but it's more powerful to not show us, so that when we actually get there later in the movie, it's so much more terrifying. Instead, we just get those moving branches. Also, it's a wonderful callback to the first shot in the film. The first shot in the film is those moving branches, and then, of course, the the pitchfork, or pitchfork, what am I saying? The forklift coming in. Um, we know just by seeing these moving branches again that this is the same animal that... Uh, that killed that worker at the top of the movie. And of course, it's the first, second time we see Muldoon as well. Um, oh, I forget the name of this actor who plays Muldoon. Uh, Bob. Oh my gosh, you're probably all yelling at your, at, your, at your iPhones or your stereos telling me who it is. If you get the opportunity, there is a wonderful, sorry, a little side story here. If you get the opportunity to watch uh, there is a, uh, a Royal Shakespeare Company production of Macbeth from 1979 that stars Ian McKellen, who eventually became Gandalf. Uh, this guy, whose name I'm forgetting, who is wonderful. Uh, I think he plays Macduff. And uh, Ian McDiarmid, who is, the, of course, Emperor Palpatine in the Star Wars, Star Wars franchise. All directed by Trevor Nunn, who went on to direct uh, the Les Miserables, you know, which was lived on Broadway and in London and toured all over the all over the world, uh, starting in the '80s and still going. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful. Oh, and Judy Dench is in it as well. She plays Lady Macbeth, and of course, she went on to be uh, in uh, the Bond franchise. But just incredible, incredible powerhouse of. 70s actors, you know, something about the Royal Shakespeare Company in the in the 70s. And, you know, Patrick Stewart was a part of that whole scene as well. And there's something about that group of actors that went on to star in all of these franchises. And when you actually see them uh, as young people being incredible in Shakespeare, it's just breathtaking. If you want to seek it out, it's it's really, really an incredible minimalistic piece of theater where it just showcases actors wearing nothing but just all black um, in a black box with no set, just being incredible. Um, Royal Shakespeare Company, 1979, Macbeth. I saw it in college and became a, instantly obsessed. Anyway, uh, no, uh, no dialogue, or excuse me, no music here, again, throughout all of this. And uh, this is a really interesting scene in terms of how it's shot. You have all these projectors all over the place, um, almost overwhelming and uh, our characters. It's a really interesting setup. Because there's not much to the set here except for a bunch of projected pictures and projectors and lights behind them. And um, it almost makes Jeff Goldblum look like a rock star here. This is a great scene. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could. They didn't stop it's interesting to note, by the way, that uh, a little, little bit of history with Jurassic Park. This movie came out in 1993 and in the early 90s between 1992 and 1994 we were bombarded with new sound technology sound technology went through radical radical changes starting in the 90s with in 1992 with batman returns that was the first movie that featured a new technology called dolby digital this movie jurassic park is the first movie to feature a new sound technology called DTS, which Spielberg himself invested in, uh, digital theater systems, um, 
I think it got renamed to Dedicated to Sound at one point. Anyway, it stood for it's stood for different things over the years. But DTS was another sound format. And then a super expensive one came out with a movie called The Last Action Hero starring Arnold Schwarzenegger that Sony developed called SDDS, Sony Dynamic Digital Sound. And all of these three formats were competing for market space. Um, but they all more or less gave us, the audience, the same result. And unless you're a, a huge sound nerd, you probably just would sit through these logos at the top of a movie going, I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. You know, and we still sit through Dolby Atmos logos, logos and I'm, I'm sure you may have questions about what THX is as well. But basically, this movie is historically significant because it is the de- debut of DTS. And this is how far we've come. We now live in a completely digital age, right? I'm actually listening to and watching a digital version of this movie on iTunes right now. Um, But it's interesting to think that this digital sound coming out was still being stored with analog means. So check this out. You all know what a reel of film looks like, right? It's a series of pictures on this photochemical strip with these holes on the side, which are brackets that help it rip through the projector. So these brackets, you know, that go through these teeth, um, that has, you know, it's, it's 24 photographs a second going through uh, a flickering light, which gives us the illusion of image. Very mechanical process that we all sat through. Well, it got to the point where films were carrying all three formats on their film strip, and they lived around the pictures. So the way that DTS worked, which debuted with Jurassic Park in 1993, is it actually had this little time code that was on the right side of the picture in these little dots. And this time code would feed a box, a little computer, that held a CD-ROM or two that actually contained the digital sound, the 5.1 surround sound that fed the theater. So the time code from the the movie was going and and giving this separate digital box uh, information and keeping sync with the movie. That piece was existing on the film strip. Then the, there was Dolby Digital, which did it in a different way, which was giving you uh, different information, um, which was called a, a bitstream called AC3, which was a compressed bitstream of surround sound that would then go through a decoding box, and then that would give you surround. And then SDDS, which was by far the most expensive, lived on the far... Oh, oh, oh by the way, Dolby Digital existed in between the teeth of, of the holes, the sprocket holes in the... Uh, in the actual film strip. But then on the far left of those sprocket holes was SDDS. That was on the strip. It's ridiculously mechanical, this whole thing. And check this out. SDDS required more speakers. It was more expensive to install. But since Sony uh, owned its own theater chains at the time and installed like 1,700 of them in 94, something like that, it broke down the most. And the reason it did was for the what in today's world seems like the craziest reason it was on the far edge of the film strip so just wear and tear alone would end up kind of shredding the soundtrack of sdds because where where it was physically located on the film negative this is crazy to me but sdds would drop out became the least reliable and since it was the most expensive uh hasn't really had the same success as dolby digital of course now we have dolby atmos and all of that And then people ask about what THX is. THX is not a sound format at all. It was a fancy club. It was a club that was basically a spec, like a standard. Hey, if you are good enough and you have done the right acoustic treatment in your your theater and you 
mix this in, a, in an approved environment by THX, we will stamp our approval logo to tell audiences, hey, you are good enough to be a THX certified movie. It was a certification program that was a stamp of quality. It wasn't a format at all. Um, and all of this I felt was, at least for me as an audience member, before I started doing sound professionally, I found it to be very confusing. I didn't know what any of it was. But uh, this is what was going on in the 90s. And Jurassic Park was Spielberg's soundtrack of choice to debut this new technology in 1993. Now, this is about as close to The Lost World as we get with John Williams, this sort of... Uh, 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 this sort of tribal or drum music um, that we have here as we go through the gates. And of course, you get this wonderful line. What do they got in there, King Kong? <laughs> um, we'll talk about this in future episodes, but the, the Hal Wallace uh, King Kong from 1933 with a score by Max Steiner uh, is a huge, huge influence on all of the creators of these kind of movies. Um, and so they can't help but do homages to, to King Kong. Um, but yeah, we have a little bit of music here, which is great, but it's really nothing featured like what we've seen and isn't really representative where we're going. If anything, the music's kind of scoring the deflated sense of expectation, you know, this kind of desolate area here, like, huh, that didn't work out. Those are the first sign of something not going to plan. You know, very mild compared to what's coming, of course. Samuel L. Jackson, before he was super famous, uh, Pulp Fiction actually came out later that same year and made him a megastar. Uh, Our lives are in your hands and you have butterfingers? And throughout the 90s, he became such a star. But yeah, here is this, uh, here is sort of the only hint that we get of what is in the novel. You know, they condense it down to this conversation. You know anybody who can network eight connection machines and debug two million lines of code for what I bid for this job? Because if you can, I'd love to see him try This is the closest we get to uh, Dennis's motivation here. <laughs> Jolt Cola. Oh, it's so 90s. I will not get drawn into another financial debate with you, Dennis. I really will not. So now we actually see his motivation. We actually get people for their mistakes. But I do ask the relationship of these two. Thanks, Dad. Dennis, the headlights. Yeah, I'll debug the tour program when they get back, okay? Okay? It'll eat a lot of compute cycles. We'll lose part of the system for a while. You know, there's a finite amount of memory. You can't use it for everything. We're going to compile for half an hour. Go ahead. All of you. We're approaching the Tyrannosaur paddock. Now, you would think with a close-up like that on Muldoon, you would get some sort of music, and it's nothing. Nothing. Nothing here. And look how gorgeous that is. That, of course, is location on Kauai. Really interesting here that uh, there's no music here, and then of course later on there's no music in the T-Rex scene, giving us that sort of one-to-one. And that might have been by design too, because the T-Rex scene that takes place at night in the rain was actually shot, um, even though this is a universal movie and a lot of stuff was shot on universal universal stages, uh, Warner Brothers has a huge stage um, uh, just, you know, uh, 
around the hill from from Universal. And this that scene in the rain was actually shot on a soundstage to imitate this location shooting here. But you would never know it. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. But there is just absolutely no music here. Eat man. Woman inherits the earth. <laughs> and they both look over. Wonderful world building, though. By Gary Rydstrom and crew. Gary Rydstrom, Gary Summers, everyone at Skywalker Sound. And again, no music. We're going to try and tempt him with the goat. I think music might be coming in, but it's not. Just the sound of a squeaky cage. What's the matter, kid? You never had lamb chops? <laughs> I happen to be a vegetarian. So this is the thing about Jurassic Park. The, the moments that are the most tense are musicless. It's, it's the inverse of, your, uh, of what you normally experience in these type of movies. And in a way, it makes it more real. Suppressed 65 million years of gut instinct. And it's a perfect movie to do it with because of the lush location. You can just fill the screen with sound. It's very much like a fantasy film in that way. You go from high-tech sounds to jungle uh, sounds. Now, now eventually you do plan to have dinosaurs on your, on your dinosaur tour, right? <laughs> I really hate yeah. that man. I really hate that man. <laughs> so good. Yeah. See the Tyrannosaur. Uh, and even the sounds of the car are very important. You know, I mean, they're in some kind of Ford SUV or hybrid SUV. I don't know what they're in, but, you know, a very standard 90s car. But the sound of the Ford moving along is this kind of hydraulic, almost electric motor sound Everything in this movie um, feels either technological, technologically advanced or totally wild. Um, but those sounds are important because if you, if you heard a combustion engine in there just going, this movie would somehow feel like a cheap safari, and it's not. Instead, we, we get the idea that we're in a theme park just by not hearing that motor. Instead, we hear this kind of hydraulic sound. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Now, freeze your hand. Freeze your hand. Don't move. I'm going to do the same thing. Start with the same same place again. Okay. Which way is going to roll up? Let's say back. Same way. For a summer action movie, there is a lot of dialogue without music helping it out. It's just the performances of great actors, great writing, but giving us important information, learning about chaos theory, this is a, a wonderful uh, trick that script writers do. Great script writers will give you information and exposition while something else is going on. We're building character here. You know, we're developing this kind of love triangle where it's not even really a love triangle. You know, uh, Ellie and Grant are together, but Malcolm doesn't know it, and he's hitting on Gr on Ellie Sadler. Um, but he's the, the script writer is using that that moment of of him hitting on her to give us really important information about chaos theory. Um, this is how we know the park is going to go down. But, you know, it's it's kind of given to us with a spoonful of 
of sugar. You know, it's easy for us to, to take all that information in because it's entertaining because while we're getting that information, we're actually going, oh, geez, he's hitting on her. Did you see that? That's great writing. So there's this moment here where early 90s users could actually see the QuickTime. It's actually not this shot, but later on when he's talking to the doc and it's raining, you can actually see the QuickTime movie scrolling at the bottom. Um, Coming up on our music cue here. In the script, this was a stegosaurus. And they changed it to a Triceratops. Sorry, in the book, it was a ste it was Stegosaurus, which is why Stegosaurus are so prominent in the Lost World. I think it was a lot of fan feedback that people really wanted Stegosaurus. But Spielberg was obsessed with the Triceratops. I believe that that's why they chose the Triceratops here. Incredible work by Stan Winston. And this is the first uh, sequence that they shot. It's the first, uh, first day of shooting on location was, uh, was actually this scene in order to wow the cast and get everyone in the, in the mode of, of what kind of movie they were making. Because obviously while you're shooting around CG dinosaurs, you can't see the CG dinosaurs. But this was actually transported on location, this uh, animatronic creature, and they all shot this scene. And it's wonderful because you actually get real reactions here, just the artistry. And the tragic music. Again, William's going for pure emotion here. And she's crying. <laughs> this scene is very similar in tone and spirit to the Journey to the Island uh, Brachiosaurus tree scene. Um, and of course, now the uh, the science takes over. The scientists take over. You know, you have your emotional moment, and then they move into trying to diagnose here. Great shot of Dr. Grant. And, and again, the music really doing the job here to, to work on our emotions. They're all kids in this scene. As you go from a shot from Lex to a shot to Dr. Grant. Another interesting uh, change from the book is that Lex is the younger sibling in the book, and Tim is the older brother, and they switched that for the movie. Yes. We know they're toxic, but the animals don't eat them. So this was a huge uh, mystery that was solved in the book, too. So these gallstones um, that were helped used to digest in bigger animals were actually covered in West Indian lilac, and that's how they were eating it. Um, Dino droppings? Droppings? <laughs> Dino droppings. Yep. It's funny, you look at these old CRT computer monitors and these old graphics, and they look so dated, but they were really, really hot stuff back in the day. Pick it up again tomorrow where we left off. Are you sure we have to? It's not worth picking the chance, John. Well, it's a strange winch 45 Tell when they get back in the cars. So. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, Last shuttle leaving for the dock leaves in approximately five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now. Ah! This is a great gag here. 
it's not just this big pile that he's next to for visual reference. It's as the camera dollies out, you're going to get a second pile right here. <laughs> Again, no music, no funny clarinets going bloom, 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 bloom. There's no commentary, you know? We can actually, let's take stock in the amount of music that we've heard. We heard music, obviously, for the, the sick uh, Triceratops. We heard music when there was no Dilophosaurus. We heard music around the birth of the raptors and Mr. DNA. That's pretty much it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is not a lot of music in this. Ah, there it comes. So we're moving into sort of the espionage part of, uh, of the middle of the movie. This is where the plot really starts to take over. Now things are starting to happen. Of course, the storm moving in. Speaking of storms, uh, there was a real-life hurricane that hit Kauai when they were all there shooting Jurassic Park. And uh, they all had to stay inside their hotel and be uh, hunkered down and actually ended up in the eye of the hurricane at one point. And um, what was uh, incredible, by all accounts, is that when the hurricane was over... The Jurassic Park film crew actually became a hurricane relief crew and worked with all of the locals in order to um, provide aid to the local population who were just devastated by this hurricane. Um, there's that quick time scroll window. You can see the cursor over the play button right there. Anyway, um, one of the cool stories about that, you know, I don't know if people really know what producers do, but producers make things happen. They're the ones that make sure that all the details are tended to in order to actually allow directors and, and, and creatives to actually, they actually make the movie. I mean, they actually get things done. A great producer. And Kathleen Kennedy was the producer of this movie. And when that hurricane hit, she, when it was over, boarded a military helicopter and flew from Kauai to Honolulu so that she could get on the phone or multiple phones and start organizing aid from the mainland of the states in order to come to Kauai in order to assist in the hurricane relief. How badass is that? That's a great story. I think that's also from Mike Matasino's um, liner notes from the La La, La La Land Records release. But, um, you know, there was actually a storm that hit, just like the movie. In the movie, there was a, there was a, a storm that hit, a really bad storm that hit Kauai when they were all there shooting on location. And of course, he's going to execute his plan here. And we're coming up on a on a very famous or possibly infamous cue. Dennis steals the embryo here, which we talked about. Um, the reason I said it's a it's a somewhat infamous cue is that people talk a lot about this, and I've I've found a lot about this online, and and many of you have asked me about this in terms of. The conspirators cue that John Williams wrote for JFK, which came out in late 1991, uh, just a year and a half prior to this movie, they're not exactly the same melody, but they both have the same tempo and that same sort of six-eight feel with a little bit of a uh, um, of a piano riff. This relies more on synths, and it's got a, its own melody, Jurassic Park, and it's a little bit more realized, and it's also got a little bit more wacky comedy to it. Something a little cartoonish about this cue versus the conspirators. But if you look online for conspirators versus um, from JFK, that's the name of the cue, versus Dennis Steele's Ambro, you'll find, I mean, you can find YouTube playlists of like 
how much that conspirators cue from JFK not only influenced this, but influenced movies like Under Siege and The Usual Suspects. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on um, for how influential that cue was. But I think that this is kind of John Williams's second take on that. And of course, Wayne Knight was in both movies. So I've also seen people speculate that it's, you know, it's his theme for Wayne Knight, the actor. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. If any of you have any comments or thoughts on this, please write in at uh, the soundtrack show at HowStuffWorks.com. But, but yeah, there are some some um, there are some similarities there. Of course, you get that flute again. This is this is the island life here. So it's interesting that he uses that that sort of that native flute there while he's pulling the um, the embryos out into that barbasol can because he's basically communicating to the audience that even though the visuals that we're seeing are very very technical, what he's actually stealing is life itself. He's stealing all of that life on the island that we celebrated earlier, and uh, even even the uh, predators. You see shots of the predators there. Tyrannosaurus, Velociraptor, that sort of thing. But this cue goes on for a while. You know, this cue really does represent sort of technology um, making everything hit the fan here. The dino droppings hit the fan, as I said before. We're actually going to come up to a close here, but um, the music fades out, and we just get the sounds of everything going wrong. Senses are failing all over the park. Fine, Landry. Check the vending machines. interesting kind of combination of again with that flute is it uh, is it just source music or is it not it's kind of a, a nice mixture there For as long as we're in this queue, this is really all Dennis is doing here. Oh no, they're still on. Why the hell would he turn the other ones off? So far, Dennis is still, everything's still going to Dennis's plan here. It's a great gag here with the sign. Oh, listen to that synthesizer. It's just absurd. Access main program. Access main security. It's almost Tron-like. It's almost Wendy Carlos. Uh, uh, uh. You didn't say the magic word. Please! God damn it! Hate this hacker crap! Call Nedry's people. In Cambridge. Phones are out too. Where did the vehicle stop? And with that, the music stops. The shot on the goat. We're back to the T-Rex pavilion. And we are going to stop right here. 
Thank you all for tuning in for the first half of our musical commentary for Jurassic Park. We're going to be back with the second half. We're going to talk about how the music really ratchets up in the second half and the introduction to the Predators theme. Well, I should say the second time you hear the Predators theme after hearing it in with the uh, flute at the top. But uh, there's so much more to talk about, so much more Jurassic Park to get through. Um, it's been great chatting about this, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.